So my name is Rui Correa Gonçalves. I am one of the sessional lecturers at Birkbeck, where I teach law of the European Union. And I'm also a PhD candidate and a member of the Center for Critical European Law, directed by Professor Michel Everson. So during this week, um, a week before the UK um, decides on its future, as we know, in Europe, in a referendum, the EU was on trial at Birkbeck School of Law. As you know, Law on Trial is an annual week-long program of public lectures and panel discussions, bringing together um, academic staff recognized internationally as authorities in their field. Due to the levels of interest um, it raised so far, the attendance numbers and the exceptional quality of all guest panelists and their contributions, of course, I believe Law on Trial 2016 has been a huge success. And I'm sure that tonight's uh, session with these panelists will be exceptional as usual. So please do feel free to uh, tweet, to post. Uh, the, the hashtag that should be used is BBK Law and Trial. Please do that. So this evening we ask, what is the future of the EU? Well, this is the million dollar question, isn't it? Or should I say the million euro question? Or since we are in the UK, let's say the million pound question, not to create any more problems, okay? So using a mix of cultural, political, and philosophical approaches, this evening we'll seek to answer the question of quo vadis Europa? For those who have not studied Latin, or have not seen the famous 1950s Hollywood film, quo vadis means, where are you going? Or where you going? So, where are you going, Europa? This is what we're trying to uh, discuss tonight. Can the European project be saved? Which are the cultural ties upon which the EU can build? Can we identify new forms of post-statal political organization in order to secure civility in the disorganized world beyond state sovereignty? Will the central forces of crisis undermine the European project in its entirety? Are there particular steps that can be taken to overcome current concerns, for example, the ongoing problem of the democratic deficit. <coughs> what roles can law and the legal theory play in guiding the European Union into the future? These are some of the questions that we will try to answer this evening. We have invited some of the best scholars who have specialized in, in fields of study pertinent to these questions and who may, better than anyone else, provide us with the necessary intellectual knowledge <coughs> and expertise to find answers for them. So our panel this evening is composed of Dr. Manuela Zechner, Professor Christian Jurgis, Professor John Ryan, and Professor Eric Woodward Erickson. I'll introduce each of the guest panelists with more detail at the beginning of each of their presentations or talks. Each panelist will have 10, 15 minutes to provide us with their thoughts on these matters, on these questions. And at the end of the presentations, we'll have some time for debate in the form of questions and answers. So without further ado, I will start by introducing the first guest panelist, Dr. Manuela Zechner, who has also wrote and directed the film Remembering Europe, A Journey into the Future of Crisis, which um, has just been screened and most of you have just watched. So Dr. Dr. Manuela Zechner is a researcher, facilitator, and cultural worker she coordinates the Future Archive and Radical Collective <coughs> Care Practices projects, as well as producing the Sounds of Movement radio show. Her work focuses on migration and social movements, group facilitation, and micropolitics, 
as well as translation and the European space. She is currently a postdoctoral researcher, uh, research fellow at the Berlin Institute for Migration Research and works with the citizen platform Barcelona in Comú and the platform for research and participatory methodologies Murmure. So please welcome Dr. Manuela Zechner. Um, is that fine? I think the mic is on. I'll speak from here. Um, so my contribution to this panel, most of all, was actually the film that you just saw. So I'm just going to say a few things about the film, and then I'll leave the gentleman with the big questions in the room, um, which I'm very ha happy to dodge to some extent, because they are rather big. Um, first of all, thanks a lot for the invite. It's very nice to get to show my film here in London, and in this context. Um, I think it's perfect timing with this film, right before the Brexit vote, even though this film was not made with a Brexit in mind at all, I shall say, so don't take it too literally, let's say. Um, uh, I would call this film a futuristic documentary essay, so as you have, those of you who have seen it, have seen it in terms of the format, it kind of adopts a, a documentary style of interviews, um, interviews that are set in the future, in a desirable future of 2040, more or less. These interviews were made with a method from the Future Archive project, which I've been running for 10 years, which is based on a kind of playful performative method where two people or a group of people imagines that they're in a desirable future and they try and remember the present. So in this case, 2040 is where we are in the film and people are remembering 2015, more or less. The, all of these interviews were shot last year. So the film has just been, I've just finished this film. Um, and then there is an essay component to this film also, um, as you see, because there are quite a few bits that were scripted by myself and uh, are a bit more poetic in narratives. Um, so really the film presents a kind of narrative patchwork of, um, of different ways of imagining and approaching the question of what the future of Europe might look like. Europe and the EU become synonymous in some moments, and some moments they're not. Um, so it's really essentially about the question of how to speak about Europe also. And uh, some of the people that are in this film are in the audience, and I want to thank them a lot for supporting me and giving me their interviews. Um, the Future Archive has a website online, which is futurearchive.org, where you can find a lot of information about the method. There's many, many, about, uh, there's an archive of about 60 interviews from the last 10 years where people imagine the future. So some of the futures in this archive are already quite old. Some of them are from 2005, but almost imagine 2017. So um, there'll be a moment where we can do a kind of retrospective of this archive. Um, yeah, and I think the film, to kind of say it very briefly, is, is kind of thinking uh, the crisis of Europe as a crisis of the imagination. I think this is one of the key points of Europe, so uh, uh, of, the, of remembering Europe. So the question it poses to different people all with their own approaches. Most, most of them are kind of activists or thinkers in one way or another is what, what are the alternative imaginaries that we can draw on when we try and imagine a future of Europe that would be desirable, more or less. Um, and so for those of you who've seen the film, I think there are some broad tendencies that kind of emerge. There is a more dystopian vision of Europe and the European Union, particularly people speaking from a more Eastern European position, etc. There's a lot of kind of history of neoliberal experimentation and violence that you can hear ringing uh, through these interviews. Um, there's some voices from outside of Europe, there's some voices looking from South Africa, etc., that also uh, refer more to kind of colonial histories and how one might deal with that. 
Um, in terms of tendencies, there's also kind of more Mediterranean perspective, I would say, of people that have a, that imagine the Mediterranean space as the kind of political promise of the future of Europe. So very much to do with the alliances around Greece, Spain, perhaps Portugal, Italy right now. Um, yeah. Um, and so what the film tries to kind of work through is different alternative visions. So what you don't have so much in the film is the is a classical pro-European, uh, northwest, central European affirmation that we kind of already know uh, of the founding principles of the European Union, etc. Um, what this film tries to do is show Europe as a contradictory space um, of struggles and imaginaries. So struggles are quite important in this film in the sense that the future, I think, will need to pass through inventing new forms of struggling and organizing together, uh, rather than just a series of new abstract concepts that will be imposed from above. Um, and so there's a question of, do we imagine a future within and beyond the EU? To what extent are we able to speak about Europe without speaking about the EU? Um, so in some of the interviews, you see this happening more or less. Uh, and. Um, yeah, and it's a, the future archive method in general is a kind of, by imagining yourself in a desirable future, it opens a kind of playful space for trying out new ideas and trying out kind of positive imaginaries. Uh, it's really a game, actually, that you would play in this kind of conversation. So I used the method to talk about this uh, issue because it seemed important to open a, a different space of imaginary rather than having uh, a classical debate about what is to be done in Europe, which Hopefully we'll, we'll see what happens today. <laughs> <laughs> These are big questions. Um, yeah, and um, borders are a key issue. Where do we see the borders of Europe or the European Union as sitting today? How do we imagine possibly overcoming borders? What other kind of imaginaries, again, can we propose beyond borders? There's some talk of limits in the film, for instance. Um, and what possible, how can we possibly struggle within and around Europe um, by building new alliances? I think these are kind of key questions uh, that the film addresses each through, through about the interviews. Uh, the film is based on 15 different interviews, so each of them presents a different uh, vision. I think many of you have actually seen it, so I'm not going to show more clips now, but I think it might be more useful if you have questions that I'll, I'll hand over to the panel and we can have a debate at the end. Okay, questions will be looked at. Thank you. Thank you. We'll have time to discuss and have some questions about the, the film. So, our ne next guest panelist is Professor Christian Jurgis. Uh, Christian Jurgis is Professor of Law and Society at the Urgy School of Governance. His research focuses on European and international economic law, risk regulation within the EU, and in international trade relations, particularly the legitimacy problems of, of pertinent governance arrangements and practices. In addition to his professorship at Hertie School, Christian Jurgis is a researcher, is a research professor at the Law Faculty of Bremen University and co-director of the, the Center of European Law and Politics. Until 2007, he held the chair of European Economic Law um, at the European University Institute in Florence. He, is, he was a visiting professor at Trento, Italy, Birkbeck College, University of Toronto, New York University Law School, and Columbia Law School. 
He has been a fellow at the Institutes for Advanced Study in Berlin and Wassenaar. In 2009, he was awarded an honorary doctorate um, from, one, from the University of Freiburg. Professor Christian Jurgis is a co-director of a co-editor <laughs> of the European Law Journal Review, of the European Law in Context, and a member of the programmatic steering board of the Hague Institute for the Internationalization of Law. So please welcome <laughs> Professor Christian Jurgis. Very breaking down under these honors. Well, ten minutes. Ten minutes. If you're asked to say something in 10 minutes, you think, well, this is no time at all. But if you think closer, you say, well, who will have so much to say, really? This is a problem. Now, what I've decided to do is to talk about this book, which is very recent, <laughs> which you can buy if you want. The End of the Eurocrat's Dream, no question mark. The End of the Eurocrat's Dream is the Italian example. What is in this book, and why do I think it's adequate? And actually, I see relations to your film. <laughs> Uh, the end of the Eurocrat theme is edited by three colleagues and myself. It has 12 chapters written mostly by elderly gentlemen, and most of them <laughs> getting, getting ever more angry. And that is, I, I just give you three names, those who are doing European studies will name them. Peter Grimm is a former constitutional judge in Germany. Gian Domenico Maione has invented the idea of a European regulatory state. Fritz Scharf, I think, is one of the leading political scientists uh, in, in the European realm. Uh, and they are all, I'm saying, are getting more angry about what? About their, they're angry about your disappointment is not the right word. They are disappointed. And this disappointment, I hope, is also a creative resource. European crisis also. This is now the first point I make. I make three points. The first is the, uh, the diagnosis. This is not very difficult. European crisis is not all about economics and smart government. <coughs> it's a glance at the European <coughs> present problem. It suffices unemployment, austerity with the future, politicization increasingly to the rise of populist thought, populist movements, crisis governance as handling emergencies, I could go on, but just conclude. The emergency governance outside, outside uh, the uh, realm or outside the frames of, of law is a real and amazing problem, and we are not prepared to confront such a situation. Now, the amazing uh, thing is that nevertheless, when you listen to the mainstream uh, Political scientists, lawyers, economists are outside my, my picture. But they are all carrying on saying we solve the problem, we solve the problems by creating more Europe. If we have a problem, let's find a European solution. Now, our book is basically a message that says this was one of the the mantra of, of European integration is something where we have to rethink the problems we have inherited or we have run into in such troubled waters did not come out of the blue and are not only to be explained with a crisis of the American market for housing or something. They have some deeper and longer history. 
The promise of 1957-1958 was that open borders and free trade were uh, strong enough or seeming and were strong enough to ensure peace and prosperity over a long period of time, unforeseeable and ever more and ever better. Seemingly, paradoxically, it was a great progress and integration which led us into a dead-end alley. This is the diagnosis of most of my colleagues. And we are saying it was creating or operating within an institutional framework which was adequate for the first years of European integration and which was, so to speak, petrified when the project was going on and producing, indeed, deeper integration all the time. The answer we had is that ever more, ever more uniformity will be the answer, the future-oriented answer to the uh, deepening of European integration. Now, this did not come true, and I'm not now summarizing what I just said in the beginning. Europe is running into problems because the kind of political interdependence and the kind of conflicts we have to handle cannot be resolved with the kind of framework we have established. Now, this is the diagnosis of the book, not very uh, not very broad, <coughs> but it has also a subtitle. And the subtitle heist, uh, heist is Adjusting to European Diversity. The subtitle uh, is actually a common denominator of a variety of approaches trying to say, well, if it's not more Europe, it's not more uniformity, it must be something like handling diversity, managing diversity, and we are somehow um, bra brave Europeans because we have the motto in the constitutional treaty, which never became the constitution, united in diversity. With that message, um, people are running around and trying different perspectives. I just now explain a bit of my own, and this will be, I'm afraid, be enigmatic to have too few lawyers in the room. But, but it is a, a legal analysis or an effort to understand how one could imagine the framing of united in diversity. What could that mean? Now, um, it has, it has a, it's an approach which is based on a couple of premises, and I start with these premises before I explain why it's such a good idea. Now, the premises. It is unlikely that Europe will converge in, the European will converge in their political perspectives, that the institutional varieties of Europe's forms of capitalism and economic cultures will disappear, or that they will institutionalize a uniform pan-European system of the welfare state, a European social model. The varieties of capitalism studies instruct us that's a surprising, that surprising resistance against integration from above and against planning by people who are really only sitting at their desk, in, mainly sitting at their desk in Brussels and imagining, imagining really what is best for Thessaloniki in Greece, and that is apparently very different. Okay, I'm saying the um, the kind of uh, effort to reform or to instruct or to reorganize Europe by this kind of centralized planning and instruction from above will not work. We will have to try something else. And now this uh, something else I call conflict law constitutionalism. Conflict law 
constitutionalism is to say that we have to be aware that Europe is not uniformity, that uni non-uniformity, diversity creates tensions, interdependence and tensions, and the task of Europe in my modest uh, vocabulary is to live or to re find responses to these tensions. Now Europe is still composed of states, member states, and these member states are different, interdependent but different. Whatever they do, they affect their neighbors. So my diagnosis is the task of Europe is to understand, or the task of the European organization is to understand these interdependencies and to see to it that these external effects of national policy making will be accommodated. Now I have three kind of answers to this, which is um, that we have, well, I, I do it in three steps. There is uh, a, the, the effort we have to undertake is to understand how our activities in one state, how the Brexit, for instance, affects the rest of Europe. And isn't it then the task of the European community or the common European policy-making area to see to it that these kind of effects get controlled or uh, accommodated. Now, this is a very, at first sight, a very naive thought that I say, if we have democracies and we have effects on others, we have to take these effects into account, and the European constraints help these member states or impose on these member states duties to take into account. It's a very difficult thought. I don't go deep into it. The other thing is, we have to design cooperative problem solving. This, I think, is very uh, naive, but not very naive. It's, it's so, so clear that so many problems we have cannot be resolved at the national level and cannot be resolved centrally. We need cooperative problems of this message. And the third one is that we also have to understand that a couple of things cannot be decided. One example is atomic energy. The Germans have decided not to like atomic energy. The Brits have just decided to like it again, or to like it a bit, I don't know. The French will like it forever. Whatever, <laughs> whatever it is, it is so deeply in our uh, industrial cultures, in, in our belief in, in the management of, of problems that we cannot accept, please, that some things cannot be resolved. Undecidability, I call it. One another example of undecidability, a bit more topical, is indeed the euro. Um, and I do not believe that it is possible, that it is possible to design something like a uniform decision which will be useful <coughs> for all these different member states. So this is now a very problematic message, and because I say the idea of ever deeper economic integration and the idea of legitimate, politically accountable <coughs> democratic governance don't fit together. I have one um, observer of the European uh, institution from outside, the American political economist Danny Roderick, who is from time to time commenting on everything in the world, but also on Europe, unfortunately. <laughs> Now, he has, he has developed a very interesting uh, theory, the, the trilemma thesis. The trilemma thesis is 
deep economic integration, politi uh, political democracy, and autonomy of regions cannot easily fit together. So you have to decide you can get two at once. Deep economic integration would require Europeanization of the political system. Federal, the federation would be such an answer, he says. This is the answer, and he adds, these Europeans don't want it. They don't do a federation. And then the message becomes deeply problematic or deeply pessimistic. We cannot resolve the problem. This is what the message is about. Now, today, fortunately enough, or unfortunately, Roderick has written a blog in Social Europe Journal on Brexit. <laughs> you have seen it. Yes, I have. <laughs> Yeah, it is, it is quite fascinating that he did it today. It fitted into my framework, but it is, again, <laughs> it is, again, very problematic because what he says actually is, look, and he has written this before. The man is, is really coherent in his thinking. He had written before, if Europe does not manage to establish a federation, they have to come up front and they have to see to it that they have to dismantle they have to learn to live with less Europe that constantly say we want to solve our problems by creating more Europe. It fits into my frame of living with diversity, organizing diversity. This sounds a bit naive, but it is possible that we agree that <laughs> Now, what he says today, however, and this is really um, disastrous, uh, or I, I, I'm disappointed because. He starts his, his, uh, his uh, blog with saying, I hope the Brits won't vote leave. They should stay. And they should stay because Europe on the whole will be less democratic if they leave. This is the first message. Then he concludes at the end and says, well, but if I look at what these Europeans are doing right now, and of course Germany is in the front, <laughs> and he says, this is so terrible. <laughs> What is happening now, this kind of hierarchical governance, anti-democratic, undemocratic governance structures they are establishing, I call it an emergency governance, that he says it may be even better to leave. This is the conclusion he says. And this I, I was really shocked because um, as uh, we have discussed all, a lot, after all, with all these terrible uh, elements Europe has to offer and these unattractive responses to all sorts of things, which were also in the film, it is still, so to speak, the better option it is threatening to leave. But if a man like, like uh, uh, Roderick says, there is a huge risk in whatever you do. You stay, it's a risk. You leave, it's a risk. And the calculated risk that I can imagine that responsible people now, my, my response still is, no, uh, it is possible, and now I have at least a couple of people that are supporting me. They are from the varieties of capitalism studies, and they are economic historians, and they explain that variety is not something which you have to destroy, but you have to understand that variety is potentially beneficial and constructive. And if that is so, and the, the strongest, the strongest is a, a German economic historian, Werner Alessauser, who is indeed an authority, and of course historians, historians are 
imagining, imagining something. But he, his message is that indeed it is conceivable, and he even is, says he's able to show that the varieties of European industrial tradition, economic cultures, is a productive resource which we should defend. Now, this is an answer, my answer to, to Roderick. We don't, we don't have to uh, vote out. We have to learn to organize variety. Okay, so our next guest panelist is Professor John Ryan. Professor John Ryan is a fellow at LSE Ideas, International Strategy and Diplomacy. He was a fellow um, at the St. Edmunds College, oh, University of Cambridge, London School of Economics and Political Science, Center for International Studies, and the European Integration Section of the German Institute for International and Security Affairs in Berlin. He works as a senior advisor for private and public sector organizations. Professor John Ryan has edited two books with Peter Lang Publishers, The Global Currencies Conundrum, published in 2014, and Towards a Resilient Eurozone, Economic, Monetary, and Fiscal Policies, which was published in October 2015. Professor Ryan's current areas of research are Eurozone crisis, global currencies, and Britain and European Union. So please, keep Professor Ryan. Okay. I'll try to keep to 15 minutes um, like previous speaker. And I think um, when we look at this particular issue, um, uh, I want to deal with it from a perspective of how worthwhile is the European Union. And we've had a very strange debate in this country, as you all know. And the two areas now that are, are emerging is the probability that Britain might leave the European <coughs> Union and the probability that Greece might be pushed out of the Euro. And maybe follow on from that that they would be pushed out of the European Union. So let's go on that premise. And so, you know, from the Eurozone crisis, what have we learned from this Eurozone crisis? We have learned that um, the Eurozone is quite undemocratic and unaccountable to a large extent. And when you look at the European Central Bank and the European Commission, you see that. And that, of course, they are two members of the Troika that have been imposing uh, so-called reform and austerity on different members of um, the Eurozone that have had to enter programs. And the IMF, who had a very let's say, indifferent reputation for a lot of people have come out much better than the European Commission and the European Central Bank, which is saying something, right? So they had gone along with this. Now they're trying to sort of put position themselves as being, you know, the helpless victims of uh, the European Central Bank and the European Commission. But th to be fair to them, in 2013, 2015, and this year, they've said that basically there needs to be debt restructuring for Greece, and that's obvious to anyone who's looked at the situation <coughs> in Greece, and to make their debt sustainable. So, obviously, economic governance in the, um, in the Eurozone is flawed, and we have all these different things that have happened. Now, this is not to say the Greeks and, let's say, the Irish have not been culpable in their own downfall, but it's been accentuated by the way that these crises have been, been handled. 
in terms of Ireland, of course, um, they ran up a, a, a they, they were doing okay in terms of their, their budget uh, until 2002. The Celtic, so-called Celtic Tiger, I never called it the Celtic Tiger, always called it the Emerald Fox, because already the tiger analogy was already tricky from an Asian perspective. And Ireland was a small country, and it was adaptable, and it was quick to change, so it was more like a fox than it was a tiger. But nevertheless, it, were, it relied on exports, and it relied on, um, on um, restrained wage demands because the trade unions in Ireland looked at what happened in the United Kingdom and decided we don't want to go down that road. So they made a social partnership with the government. But the government had quite a lot of people in the government who were economically illiterate, and it didn't stop there. The regulators couldn't regulate, and the finance ministers sometimes had trouble actually understanding how to do finance, and if that wasn't bad enough, there were not many civil servants in the Ministry of Finance in Ireland who were educated in economics and finance up to a level of master's level. So it was something like 13, 15%. And on top of that, you had people who didn't really have specialised knowledge about how the markets really worked and how banks and derivatives and things like that happened. So you had all the banks in Ireland sort of operating on a global perspective, borrowing from French, British, German banks, American <coughs> banks, and really, you know, piling up a lot of debt around the housing issue. So Ireland then decided in uh, the 2000, I think the 2002 election, uh, the minister, things were going very well, so they cut taxes and raised spending. Obviously, that's tricky because the amount of revenue you're, you're getting in, and if there was going to be a scenario that you were looking at that the housing market might taper off a little bit, then your revenues from different taxes that you could apply was going down and you were still spending more money. So the finances became quite tricky, but that wasn't really the issue. The issue was that the multiplier effect in the banks in terms of borrowing, borrowing, borrowing more money became an issue. It became clear then that the Irish would need to um, cover those uh, particular uh, problems and actually the government actually created a situation where they guaranteed the debts of the banks. And just to stave off international market pressures. Now, at that stage, there was an idea that the Irish would then actually have to do some um, uh, burning the bondholders, as it was called. So some of the people that held some of the, those shares within those banks would have to take a hit. Then, in the process, Ireland was going to be pushed towards a, a program in terms of a bailout, which they didn't want to do. They wanted to sit on their hands for six months. They didn't have to go to the, the market. But they were actually forced to go into a program before they needed to by the European Central Bank. And it's all there documented in the um, crisis inquiry in Ireland. If you just Google uh, uh, on, on, uh, about this, you'll see uh, the letters that were sent by the ECB threatening uh, uh, the, the Irish finance minister. We will pull your funding. 
we will, you know, hell will have to, you know, won't be anything compared to what you will go through. And in the end, you saw a method of dealing with a country as they had dealt with Greece and how they were going to deal with Cyprus and how they continued to operate. And what you saw was that the European Central Bank, undemocratic and unaccountable, was veering into areas that they shouldn't have veered into in terms of fiscal budget structural reforms. Now, in saying that, um, you have a situation where uh, a lot of the governments were in such trouble, and Merkel and, Mac uh, and Sarkozy made it worse by saying they were going to burn the bondholders, but they were persuaded by Jean-Claude Trichet and also Timothy Geithner, who Timothy Geithner was also involved in saying that the Irish should take the hit for the, um, the debt and the banks, because he was worried about the contagion that might hit the US markets. So <clears throat> you've got all that going on, and in terms of um, Ireland, uh, it, it, you had also an Irish bank gov central bank governor who should have some kind of uh, responsibility to his own country, um, but decided to phone into a morning radio program um, and say that Ireland should go into a, a program, while the government was trying to hold the line and see what kind of deal it could do. And this was not the first time or the last time that a central bank governor from a member of the Eurozone would turn on its own government. Uh, this happened last year with Greece. The Greek central bank governor actually made a report. That governor happened to be someone from New former New Democracy uh, person. And uh, really, on top of liquidity being cut off from the Greek uh, government that had come into power in January last year, that was a, another hit to the reputation. So they were being squeezed from all directions, plus the core countries led by Germany, and up to a point until July, France. France stepped back from the exit issue of pushing the Greeks out, which the Germans were very keen on doing, especially Wolfgang Schäuble. Uh, and Fra um, France, Italy, and Cyprus stood against that. So you've got all this undemocratic and unaccountable behaviour by the European Central Bank and the European Commission. And the German uh, government pushing for this as well, and the five wise men of, um, uh, uh, which advises the finance ministry in Germany actually doing that uh, process as well. So where do we come to with all this mess that's happened in Ireland and in Greece and other program countries. Uh, we've got high unemployment and we've got austerity. Again, we've got eological kind of conclusion of non-liberal policies that have been pushed down the throats uh, of countries that are not allowed to recover. So uh, obviously a Eurosceptic dream would be to see the Eurozone break up. I believe the Eurozone will become smaller because Greece ultimately will be pushed out of the Euro because the Germans government want it and maybe some other countries want it as well. And the IMF are in question whether they'll stay with the program unless there's proper uh, debt restructuring. Um, now the Eurozone needs to integrate more. There's no question about that because the only game in town in terms of global power for Europe is the Euro. You've got the dollar, you've got the Euro, 
and then you've got the RMB that's in, been internationalized. And then you've got minor currencies like yen, pound, um, <coughs> and Swiss franc. But the euro could be a, a useful um, um, uh, global um, tool for, for Europe, but it needs more integration. This is not going to happen probably until after the German and French elections uh, in 2017. It won't happen, the treaty change won't happen until 2018. So we've got a long time to go and there's a lot of bad stuff coming down the road. The Eurozone needs a recovering world economy. If you look at China and the debt loads and the rumours that are coming out of China and anyone who goes and visits China and talks to people, this doesn't look good. Japan, that's going very, very badly in Japan. The United States, we've got the ludicrous discussions for many years now about interest rate rises. We've had one. We've had verbal tightening all the time, but actually raising interest rates hasn't really happened. And there's always something happening in terms of Brexit or some other issue. You've got um, Brazil and Russia that are in serious trouble. India even, which was the star candidate, is starting to suffer because the rest of the global economy is going south. You've got issues in the Eurozone, a serious issue emerging in banks in Italy, and you've got the French economy, and we can see what's happening there in terms of labor market reforms being rammed through the parliament, and you can see how the French are dealing with that. So we're on the Titanic at the moment, and we've got no lifeboats. Why do I say that? Three issues. We're into negative interest rate er uh, territory, so that means there's no flexibility of taking down interest rates when the crisis comes. Quantitative easing is the second issue. We've had so many iterations of pumping money into the system, which is supposed to help the real economy, but in actual fact, it's sitting on banks' balances and it's helping the investor class get richer, but not really helping the average citizen. And we've got a higher global debt ratio than we had before the last crisis, 30 to 35%. So you've got all that good news, plus the Turkey deal that was made uh, on the migrant issue for the Eurozone. So that doesn't look too great. And let me just come briefly to the whole issue of Brexit. This is a serious problem for the United Kingdom, whatever happens next week. The Conservative Party will have to restructure itself because the things that have been said and the things that have been done are not going to be forgotten and we all see what's going to happen to the Chancellor once this vote is, is done. This threatening um, uh, to, if you're going to vote for a Brexit then we're going to cut public spending by 30 billion and we're going to increase uh, taxes by uh, 2% and of course 60 uh, Tory MPs said no, the Labour Party said no, so this just blew up before it even took off. So the Conservative Party is in trouble, the Labour Party is in trouble, the only party that seems to be benefiting from this is UKIP, because the Labour heartlands in the east of England and in northern England that will vote probably for out are going to be people who are going to think about voting for UKIP the next time around. Remember, they got four million votes the last time. 
and they've got a lot of second places where they could do very well, especially in Labour heartlands. And we've got an issue to do with the union. Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales will probably vote to stay in, but we'll have to see Northern Ireland, the unionist parties are particularly against. In Scotland, maybe it's not going to be so clear cut, but you know, they'll vote to remain. Wales will probably vote to remain, but again, it's open to question. You know, it's, there's no givens because we cannot trust the polling evidence that we've been given at the moment. And in England, we've got London, which will vote to remain. And then there's other places in England that look very clearly like they want to vote outside. So the sovereignty issue and the immigration issue and economics, these are all being intermeshed in the debate. No one is talking about the day after we've had this Brexit vote, if we vote to go out. What is the world going to look like? Are we going to have the Norwegian model, the Swiss model, or the World Trade Organization model? What are we going to adopt? There doesn't seem to be any idea about that. So the problem is referendums are very difficult uh, issues, and 54 referendums on, on issues within, the Euro within Europe, 12 have gone against the government of the day. And you've got turnout issues. Older voters are seeming to be more against than younger voters. We know that older voters tend to go and vote. And trying to mobilise younger voters to go is going to be a problem. Um, you've got better educated voters apparently are saying that they want to stay in and less educated voters want to go. And you see cities are set uh, are, as where the Remain campaign is really concentrating its fire. Cities seem to be more inclined to stay than go, in the, and the countryside seems to be more likely that it would like to, to leave. So you've got all those issues, and the immigration economy, it comes down to that. Leave is pumping on about the economy, and uh, the, the Leave campaign, the Remain, sorry, is going on about the economy, and the Leave campaign is going on about immigration, and we know, we've seen it for the last week, the worm has turned and immigration is a big issue because of one word, control. And people are talking about that. All the polling evidence is showing that um, people want more control over their, their, um, <coughs> their borders. So where does this leave us in terms of a conclusion? Not very good. In terms of the Eurozone, I've painted a very difficult position because we can flush that out in questions and answers. In terms of the United Kingdom, again, we don't know whether the polling evidence is correct, but whatever happens, even if we vote to remain in the European Union, we're not finished, because if it's a tight vote, you can be sure that when we go for treaty change, and in our country now, when we have treaty change in the European Union, we have to go to a referendum again. And greater integration in the European Union will probably be voted down in this country in 2018 if we're in a cusp of a global financial crisis, which may be possible. And what does Europe look like? Very unedifying, because in, in, in Portugal, in Spain, uh, in Greece, and in Ireland, it looked like the left and anti-austerity parties have done quite well against the People's Party, the old Social Democratic Party, which have now become a pinker shade of the sort of neoliberal uh, People's Party. That's why they're losing votes. You only have to see Germany 
two or three Umfragers in Germany where you have the people's, two people's party below 50% now. Right? Third, not always, but near there. And this is unbelievable. Unglaublich. You know, it's completely unbelievable. Right? So you have that in every country. You have that in Spain and other countries. There are alternatives to the left. And then when you look at Central and Eastern Europe, it's to the right. Poland, Czech Republic, Hungary, Austria. Even in Germany, the alternative for Deutschland is getting a strong vote. The Netherlands. And then we have the fr French election, where the National Front will get into the final round. Unemployment is going up. And the issue in terms of the future of Europe is that it is in very, very important. And I think this was important to mention this about democracy and integration and globalization. Because a lot of this now has to do with that people don't believe the media anymore because they see the media for what they are, their corporate interests mostly. So they are not trusting those interests anymore. So globalization has winners and losers. And the losers are saying, we don't want this anymore. And the U European Union needs to get the message because the European Union is about power. And the average voter doesn't have any power within the institutions of the European Union uh, as it stands. The Parliament and Brussels is the second most lobbied uh, 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 capital in the world after Washington, D.C. Corporate interests are making themselves felt there, and the average citizen is losing out. So the winners and losers of globalization are coming together, and there are more losers than there are winners, and that's the conundrum that we'll need to deal with. Thank you very much. So we've got our next and final guest, finalist, is Professor Woodward Erickson. So Professor Eric Woodward Erickson is a director of ARENA, Center for European Studies, and Professor of Political Science. His main research fields are political theory, public policy, European integration, and the preconditions for post-national democracy. He has publications on democracy in the EU, governance and leadership, functions and limits of the state, the liberty of democracy, trust, regional politics, security politics, and the welfare state. Eric Woodward Erickson has been a professor at the University of Tromsø, at the University of Bergen, professor at the Center of Professional Studies, University College of Oslo, and is currently an adjunct professor at the University of Aalborg. Uh, professor Erickson is a member of the editorial board of the Open Political Science Journal, the Norsk Statsvitenskapling, it's drift, I don't know if my Norwegian is <laughs> correct. The distinction is the Scandinavian Journal of Social Theory, Ethics, and Global Politics, and is also the co-editor of the series Rutledge Studies on the Democratizing Europe. So please welcome uh, Professor Eric. Uh, apparently we have to move um, yep. okay. our chairs to the side. Yeah, yeah. This is working. Okay. 
of his dishonoring of Lucius in a sense. So this non-humiliation aspect, I think that is very important to understand what the EU was about, what, what drive, drove it forward, and to not to do what, what went wrong, to remember it all the time, and do it also like by, by establishing the particular kinds of institutions that respected the, the, the states in, in a certain, certain way. Not hierarchy and not the dominance, but, but a, a, a kind of structure that in, involved the parties. So if, in, in a way you could read it also in light of the French Revolution, but the pr problem with that kind of, of template is that the, the struggle that came with the crisis is a struggle for the solidarity. And, and in a sense that was not redeemed if the other things were halfway redeemed, that one did not come, come true. And that's, that's what we saw so vividly in the crisis. And the humiliation aspect came, came up again. Greece were, Greeks were humiliated. They were humiliated, taken away from the, from the, the, the decision-making bodies and others also that suffered the you know, austerity. So I would just have you to, to think a little bit about this, in sense, not only be interested in, in all these institutional things and, and, and the legal, uh, legal technicalities that we have and the economics in, in it. There is something uh, as, uh, something deeper also in, in, in hold here. Don't leave, you will hate it. Yeah, that is what the Norwegian prime minister said the other day to Politico about the, the Brexit. And why did she say this? This is Norway, a, a stinking rich country and, uh, and well, <laughs> a well-run well, uh, well country. It is, uh, we don't have these kind of disparities between between classes and and, and between uh, there is a there is a kind of a, a society that is prosperous and is also doing well with, with regard to internal emissions. I will not talk about immigration policies. They they can they are as horrible as they are in most other 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 countries. But they have in 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 economic terms they have. Uh, they have managed, and this is a kind of a society that uh, also had a lot of, of this kind of working-related immigration. So it is, uh, the, it is uh, the, the population has changed a lot because we are a de facto member of the union. So this is <laughs> this is what I'm going to to tell you. So, so yeah, I should not the moments of truth. I will not go to that. Was in the way they, they what 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 they debate. Brought up, but the problem here is in uh, in uh, this kind of thing that Norway. This is a debate here in 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 in, the, in 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 UK now. It is exactly what we had in 1994 in in the referendum: self determination, self rule, democracy, and oh, an element of nationalism in it. Or at least we were we we had many so well before we had fought the, the Danish and then the Swedes and then. The, Germans. <laughs> so, so then to come with a union to, to Norwegian, to preserve the union, no way. But, but, so it was, it was feelings, feelings, a lot, emotions, all the way, and patriotism. But it was, what they defended themselves with, that was a kind of struggle for self-view. Yeah. So, so, but you should not see that say, Norway is very special. It was just a two percent more than was <laughs> that. That was forty-eight uh, percent. In favor at 52, in uh, roughly uh, against. So, so it was divided in the middle. So, so that is also to say that it was, was the same with Sweden also, but it was the, the opposite in a way. So, that, so, so it was it was divided. 
But what happened there? So what will happen here on the 21st, 24th of, of, uh, of, uh, of, um, of uh, June? Maybe the same things happened in Norway. When, when people voted no, what did the prime minister say to all the bureaucrats and all the officials at hand? Run to Brussels, go to Brussels, put your foot in every doorstep that you can, try to get involved in most most as you can and get a hand on things. You see, people voted no. The politicians, responsible politicians that had to be responsible for this, for the economy, for for the for for, for the future in a sense, and for uh, and and for uh, for being seen as a as a kind of partner in Europe, could not afford to stay outside. So we had an agreement that was um, that that was uh, established before in the advent of being a member. It was established in 1992. We have an economic, economic area agreement that was uh, um, um, negotiated with the EU in advent of, the, of uh, membership. And uh, it was a lot of countries involved in that, Austria and Sweden and, and uh, Finland, I think, also. So there was a lot of countries that were, but the other, other, other countries wanted to be member of the union. So after. After that one, after the referendum, we had a already a kind of treatment and a agreement, and that could be prolonged. So we just continued having this kind of this kind of arrangement with the EU, that made us a, 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 a gave us membership, gave, gave us right to to be a, to to trade and to act on the uh, internal market like the uh, like other states, and uh, have to. But uh, and, and this is. Uh, this is a, the catch in the sense that in order to be a member of the internal market, you have to take on all the regulations that, that, that come with it. So there was this call, the, the whole uh, acquis communautaire almost was <laughs> adopted <laughs> into taken into Norwegian law in order to, to, to be able to op operate on, on this market. market. Whereas the fisheries and agriculture are exempted, but, uh, but it is very difficult, for example, with the um, Fish uh, with the agriculture, there is the, I say there are eff eff effects. We are a member of this veterinarian directive, so a lot of the directives has to do with with the with the ag agriculture. So you try to be outside, but uh, or to do it, to have specific agreements here and there. But the EU is not the kind of international organization <laughs> that you can just specify some things and then be, and and to take something out and think you are you are uh, not affected by the rest things. Uh, get uh, gets to uh, hang, hang together here. I thought, yeah. If, 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 since I am here at the law school, maybe I should bring up this hom homogeneity principle in the sense that that is that that the the um, the, um, the, the the same rules apply to to the EAA partners as they do to to the EU countries because of this principle of homogeneity that is that the same that it must be the same rules all, all over. So in order to ensure the conformity of the internal market, we have to have this kind of, of, uh, of principle involved. So in order we talk about the EAA law as, as if this is something that is, that is uh, separate from the EU. But of course, this is EU law that is, that is applied to, in, in, to Norway. It is taken into into Norwegian legislation through a committee, and we cannot say no because if there is a if you try to say no to a directive or a regulation, the whole the whole arrangement can be put uh, at uh, at risk. So they don't dare. 
So formally, the constitution is in a way respected because this is, uh, this is taken into a parliament, parliamentary decision, this, this decision that, um, that, that, that comes in. But there is no way that you can ob ob object to that. And also, this is like, a, this is English debate, it, is, it is, looks like you can get the access to the market without, without free movement. You know, we have free movement also, also so, so, so there is no way of, 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 um, of, of objecting to that one, one either. Market access plus, plus free movement, and this goes together. But it looks like here that there is a, a thinking that this can be separated. The one thing is that we 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 had this uh, we had this agreement, but but uh, but there is a lot of all, I think there is twenty one uh, agreements in addition that came in. So we are member of the Schengen. So if I go from Norway to England, I go out of Schengen and into the EU. Understand it? If you can, as we are the, we are we are member of of Dublin Dublin Police Corporation. Norway even puts troops at the disposal of the EU. Battle troops, so they serve under the EU, European flag, even if the people said no to this, and even if you are not a formal member. So, and 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 the, uh, so Norway is that's what I said. Norway is de facto a, a, a EU member, and approximately three fourths of the legislation that applies to the member states applies also to the to Norway. So, so much for sovereignty, so much for this kind of uh, kind of this kind of position outside. So. They are expansive, expansive also. These agreements, they, they come and then they are being developed by the EU and they're taken, taken in. So they are dynamic, they are, they are comprehensive, they're being developed all the time. And where is the, where is the any chance of checking them or, 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 or doing something with them? Nothing. It is, uh, we have all the financial services, um, financial uh, supervisory system, and it was also adopted. So, so we have every we get everything on, on board. There is a there is a there is a lot of lack also. I think the problem is like is also like people get angry with with these kind of things. They come and we cannot object. And no government dare to object. In every government, even if they have a, no, a lot of no parties involved in the coalitions after that before, they have brought us closer and closer to the EU. Nobody. Uh, there to say to, to say stop because they risk risk this uh, this uh, market access and uh, and and um, and the, the, the with the mentality is, is very is disappointing. We should what should in a way think that there is a kind of, of um, um, increase in the in, in in the support for EU membership. No, it's not. But there is but there is support for this technocratic EAA agreement. If you go to the, to ask people, they say yes to that one. Well, the majority says yes. No, there has been a more more, more debate on this. But then the government said, of course, but you can, can you pay? Yeah. So this is uh, what is also. I should just perhaps I'll use the time. So. Yes, because serenity loss, that is one thing. Yeah. Oh, and what 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 what, do you, what should you have with it? What what what's the point about uh, serenity? Screaming from the sidelines. So and it is just formal, and it is a void. It has no it has it has no meaning. The problem is, of course, that you give away the power by having this kind of thing. So you you get formal serenity, but the power that you have to be a member, to be a co decision maker, to be members of these institutions, of course, they we have not. 
But the, the point is also what I what I try to to um, you know, what I try to say. I think it is a second citizens. There is a lot to say, but uh, but but that yeah excluded yeah second rates because we, we are we are we are ruled by others in a sense. So this kind of this kind of the problem is also that the EU is unintentionally turned into a hegemon. Vis a vis vis a vis a It's not that the EU is a hegemon or would like to be that. But the problem is that we are in a way on the receiving sides of uh, of thing and and uh, and, and on uh, on uh, on. Um, on, on, on decision making, we have no no, no access. So, by accepting this kind of law, we have we have in a, in a, we have in a, way, in, a way, in a way voluntarily subjected us to a, a to a hegemonic power, and it is a kind of the willing slave in a sense, as someone once used to use the use the, use the term for it. So it is philosophically also very demanding how to how to do this, uh, how to explain it, and I think you explain it by some fancy ideas about the national sovereignty and. People are low their relations that this is uh, this is uh, this is feelings all the way emotions patriotism and so and this is the kind of fiction of alternatives and this is in the way the debate that I, I think it is could have been very interesting for this Brexit debate also is there an alternative what is the alternative we also showed in the, we wrote a book on this uh, as I said the European <laughs> Union's non-members and we also showed that the effects for Switzerland is almost the same Switzerland has a lot of bilateral agreements with the EU, and EU do not like them. They would like them to be part of the EAA agreement, which is very inexpensive for uh, for EU, for, for EU itself. But so, the, but the effects on the ground are in a way the same for Switzerland as they are for for Norway. So they are not because you have to have a lot of agreements to be involved here, and the, and, and 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 these agreements make you subject to. To this kind of, of, of laws here, so there is a, 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 a but but it is this fiction which keeps also also this kind of we have this strong no to the EU movements, but they they, 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 they dream about that there is something outside that could work, and and we try to show you this thing with Switzerland. You cannot because that has been the upon the agenda all the time. We should we should have bilateral agreements like the EU, like like Britain, like 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 Switzerland, but but when we take out this one. It, yeah, it does not come, come true at all. But here I have something if you would like to wonder about what kind of, <laughs> what kind of uh, options you have and, and, and how it could be here in the, in the, in the, in the future. And it is, uh, it is not, uh, not much to say either for the, Brit for the, for the Swiss model or for the, um, for, the, for, the, for, the, for the EAA agreement. So VTO. Yeah, that's another. I cannot go into into that one, but uh, <coughs> I, I, I have tried all the time to, to show to, to to write about this thing and to, and to try to, to to show it that that we, uh, we uh, there is no Norwegian option and Norway option and and it is uh, and, and Cameron also said it immediately after when when he started this debate in a sense and and uh, and uh, <coughs> but it keeps coming up again. So mm -hmm. but uh, so this fiction of alternatives, I think it, it must uh, take take. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much, Eric. Okay, so we'll now have some time for debate. Uh, I'm conscious about the time, but we have some time for questions and answers. Uh, so let's open the panel to questions from the audience. Um, if you'd like to uh, make or ask a question, please raise your hand and we'll 
who has the? Are we done? Okay, so please. Uh, so yeah. I can just shout. So yes. I have no problem shouting. So the Christian, it was very kind of you know, refreshing to see, since the last time we met, to see you become angry about the whole situation. But you still remain an institutional optimist, yeah. I feel. So, and you're advocating, if, if I, I'm allowed to become like a boring lawyer now, so you're advocating constitutional pluralism, essentially. So a form of pluralism that advocates mutual respect. So effectively, a sort of democratic competition among the member states, if you will. But in order for that to happen, you need an amendment of the treaties. So you need all 28 member states to agree to change the current framework. And with how the political situation is right now, I don't see that happening. So I don't see anybody agreeing with anybody else. Apart from the Greek Parliament, who will probably get an email and ratify whatever they are asked to ratify. So that's one thing. Secondly, the treaties themselves, even if they are amended, they have an inherent institutional DNA, if you will. So they have specific features embedded in them right from their creation. That's really difficult to actually turn on its head. So if anything, they are an ordo-liberal wet dream, if you will. So which is infused with these notions of economic prosperity and social justice pushed aside. So I don't know how, would, how that would work like from a legal point of view. And John, I completely agree, and you know, I completely understand your argument about the euro being an invaluable tool vis-a-vis global financial markets. However, the euro has shown itself to be an instrument of severe social reconstruction and violent wealth redistribution within the eurozone. So when we look at it from, from the internal point of view, the euro is anything but beneficial. So especially when it comes to, to member states such as Greece, for example, so to give you, and it's, it's, it's not a coincidence, it's probably telling that, the, uh, that Greece was not allowed to leave the eurozone until the German and French banks were saved, until the eurozone was stabilized, and until massive privatization schemes were uh, followed through. And it's, for example, you know, the most recent example of that is what happened last week where a prime piece of Athenian real estate, which amounts to three times the size of Monaco, was sold effectively for what amounts to a price of 140 euros per square feet, which is less than an apartment in you know, a rural area in outside London. So to following a competition where you had a single tender, and every, anybody who knows anything about EU public procurement would know that this is an illegal public procurement procedure, and this was actually this was actually pushed for, pressed for, by the Commission as one of the conditions for remaining in the eurozone. So, yes, euro is a, a wonderful, you know, tool vis-à-vis -vis global financial markets. But from an internal point of view, it creates all these tensions and structures that lead to nationalistic and extremist sentiments. In the end of the day, and lastly, based on these sentiments. Do you think that this kind of color? I love the film, by the way. Uh, okay. Yeah. And so, do you think that this idea of a dystopian shock, which is what we might be heading towards, is a chance of like constructive destruction, if you will, which is exactly what it was pointed out by various interviews? So we had this shock. Something terrible happened around 2020, which is apparently coming, and but. Then this was, which is a very Marxist kind of idea, 
constructive, deconstruct, uh, constructive destruction. Something good came out of it. So maybe this is what we need since the current framework is completely sick, if, you know, for lack of any better word. Okay, would you like to take these questions or shall I? Uh, like yeah, it's, it's better. There was another gentleman who wanted to ask something. I was interested in panel's views to if, if the scenario is, is Brexit, how the EU would approach the negotiating the trade agreement in the sense that there seems to be two polarized views. The one is that um, because of the matter of trade, uh, the, the, the surplus, that they will take a very amenable approach. The other is that they will be wicked and cruel because they want to discourage other countries from going down the same route. Mm -hmm. I was interested in the panel's perspective on that and how they think that that approach would, would, will, will work out in reality. Okay, let me get one more question. That they never, never will go for the second round. Yeah. <coughs> a kind of slightly joking comment to the organizers that it's interesting to have a panel on the future of Europe with four white people, three old men, I'm sorry. But let's maybe next time think of how to diversify a bit Europe because it is already very different than this view. And I, I'm kind of curious about, I, I, I really like the discussion of the Nordic, Norwegian, lack of alternative. But then, you know, it, it seems such a dead end street. There seems to be no, you know, the way in is undemocratic and doomed. The way out is undemocratic and doomed. So, you know, is there anything like a plan C that <laughs> you would be thinking of? And I guess from the point of view of Norway or the UK, it's easier to imagine alternatives rather than from the point of view of a, you know, much more like a state like Greece that is closer to bankrupt than a lot of development countries that are you know, on the verge of self destruction. Okay, if you could. Well, um, to, to uh, start with the last remark, uh, divorce or bad marriage? What do you, what's your chance? What's divorce. Your chance? <laughs> <laughs> but this is, and divorce is also very painful, right? Okay. Yeah. Uh, but let me say just one about the constitutional perspective. It is true that I try to or have argued that my perspective of a con conflict or constitutionalism is actually something which I can read into the existing law. Now I'm very, very careful with that by now because I realize that this is in face of what is really happening naive if I see what is happening, and there, uh, the bank is my prime example. The bank is doing things which are beyond anything which you can explain, justify, rationalize. It is purely executive power. It is a commissarial dictatorship of Karl Schmidt, unfortunately. And you can term it this way, but even Schmidt said, when this happens, and when you have, because of an emergency, if you say Ireland had an emergency situation, things have to happen, then you have to explain me how do you get out of that. And this is not on the agenda of the bank. The bank is continuing, and this is, oh, I'm now getting, sorry, I'm getting angry. <laughs> but what we, what we can observe is that this state of emergency kind of governance we get is 
stabilized or it's becoming normalized. It is what is happening. Now, at the same time, I remain optimistic in saying it is not working and people are realizing it's not working. So my conflict law is coming into a situation of contestation and contestation is something potentially productive. If you can tell me there will be no treaty agreement, we are doing everything outside the treaty already. So what the hell do you tell me? No, no I, what can nevertheless happen is that practices emerge that people under the strain <coughs> find what you have once called workable agreements or so. Yeah. You should be talking about that. No, that's what the, <laughs> 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 the, 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 the new arrangements need, need to be found. You cannot do this to a, a country like Italy or a country also like Greece. But I have no, no uh, I'm saying uh, what, what we have really to face is that Lack of imagination is so terrible. This is what I liked about your film. These people try to imagine something. And my message is to say it is not true that there is no alternative. And even saying I'm not interested in power house Europe. I'm not interested. We have had this. Now, is it really true that this is the only game in town, as you say? Economists tend to say these things. I, I'm, I'm much more cautious. I say, what do you know about these potentials of these diversities of capitalism we have in Europe, the German model, the Anglo-Saxon model, the South European model is probably not sustainable, but okay, uh, these people will develop and what I find is the original sin of the European project is uniformity. Instead of what the variety of capitalism message is, we don't know which one is better but we know that some of these varieties function. Okay, these kind of messages, however, have been downplayed all the time, and I'm just trying to revitalize them a bit. And I'm not afraid of living outside the Eurozone at all. Sorry, not answering anything. Taking too much time. Would you like to go? Oh, uh, you could go. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, no, but uh, yeah, I, I remember it uh, was because uh, they are focused on this thing if they, you can be punished in a sense through these negotiations because of the behavior if there is a Brexit. Yeah, yeah, but I think that there will be so much uh, uh, problems in, 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 in the first two, in, in Basically, yeah, in political and legal terms, in order to to settle this or something. So I think the the the, the pragmatics of it <laughs> will put this will, will in in a way be be more important. There will be emotions, especially in the, in the in the beginning. But I don't think there is as far as I can see, there is no. I've been around a bit, and I don't see any kind of sentiment in the way for, for or, or support for in the way that is kind of. of Finishing the UK or something, but but there, but there are real real problems. What, what how shall we arrange these things? How how to negotiate the the, the out and then in again? So and and, and this we had a, we had a seminar the other day and I have I have a in my in my in my uh, bag I have a, a article on article fifty article fifty and it's a long article and I can assure you that there there is a lot lot of food for 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 legal scholars. And it is very, very interesting. But it is, but that is in a way what what I see as as uh, as the most, uh, <coughs> the most problematic, pro problematic thing. With regard to this, 
Nordic. Yeah, 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 I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I think there is too much nationalism in the, in, the, in Europe, and that people and, and that people are not uh, that this kind of the effectiveness. And this is a problem with, with having too much diversity and, and, and this kind of thing. There is a lot of externalities being produced that so or someone else has to suffer from. So and to take in these externalities, you need to have democratic system. And I I, I see that democratic system can exist with a lot of variety in, 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 in economic terms. But the law is one. And this is what I, what I always say to you when there's copies of law. Yeah, but in order to be copies of law, there must be a, a unity of the law. The law is, is one, one thing. And, and in, in this sense, there need to be just one, kind of one, one, one principle. But that principle could allow for a lot of, lot of diversity. But for me, this brings in democracy. And that is a way to take in the negative effects of what you are doing. And if you don't have that kind of thing, and this is a problem with also the Nordic modern way. We don't see, we are not, people, uh, the rest of Europe is not saying to Europe, you are a free rider on, on, on us. We have created a public good here. You are not taking any responsibility or doing anything for this. Except for you pay, and you pay in Norway on par on par with what 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 what, what Englishmen then also also pay. So so we pay, but we don't take the responsibility to do anything for this. So uh, this is the kind of thing that are externalities to say, and we need democratic bodies in order to take this in and to, uh, to harm, harm, harmonize them. So and and uh, and, uh, and but I, when I think about no no alternatives, it, not, it do not it does not mean that there is that that there is the system in, in place now is it of course it needs it, uh, it needed dramatic reform but there are the problems are Europeans and there is need to be European solutions to many of them or else you have this kind of dominance uh, dominance and power structures and, and negative externalities that is not taken taken care of this is how, how I think about think about so I know I, when I say there is no alternative this is, does not mean that the EU should be like it is. It, is, it should definitely be reformed, but it must be reformed in a democratic way. Can I just make a couple of side remarks before I come to your questions, which are, you know, about the Norway model, for yeah. example. Because it's interesting if you look at how elites actually drive processes. Because yes. yes. in Norway, as far as I know, and you can correct me, but referendums on entry into the European Union have been voted down, right? Yeah, two times. This yeah. was your when we looked at the um, uh, at your presentation, there's been the EU sort of kind of through the back door in a lot of respects as well. There's been by yeah. stealth, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's not surprising because I know some of the people that have been doing the stealthy business yes. because, um, <laughs> them, funnily enough, that most of the people were, as young students, were young European Federalists. Yes. So people like Eva Neumann, yes. Lars-Erik Norgard, Holst, the uh, foreign minister's daughter, yes. Kirsten, I think, um, and in the, one of the foreign ministers. So all these people believe in that, you know? Um, so there's that. And then the interesting thing on your film, which was, and it's always useful to know what you're looking at, when you saw up there in German about trans-European networks, right? And, and that's all very good because you build bridges and you build roads, but... The European Commission took all that, they lifted it, cut and pasted all that from the European Round Table, who had wanted this to happen so that they could create an infrastructure for business. So if you're interested in that, you might want to watch a documentary called um, uh, uh, Brussels Business, which is about lobbying of uh, European institutions, which shows you what's, what's going on. 
And this all shouldn't have ended like this, because with these young European Federalists, that whole idea when you go to the European Parliament, the Spinelli's name is up there, right? Altiero Spinelli was a prisoner in an island off uh, Italy. He was put there by M uh, Mussolini, and he wrote the Venetini <coughs> Manifesto. And uh, it was, you know, a federal Europe that he was looking for. And of course, British, British were very, surprisingly, British people were very very involved in that at the time, Lord Lothian, and then people like John Pinder and others. So that's all very interesting. And now we come to the, the question precisely, well, we, we've been here before because we've we met in, in Cambridge, and it's very hard now to see um, when you've supported a project, and I have to put, state my case that I'm a, a, a sceptical remain. That's how I voted. I voted with grave reservations, and if I had voted on the Remain campaign there as such that's been conducted in this country, I don't know, I would have probably abstained because it's been useless, it's been hopeless to actually put a positive case. So um, the Euro project is really in trouble. There is no question if you visit Greece or you visit the Republic of Ireland, because Ireland seems to be doing well because it's got a business model, unlike Greece. And it's been able to play because when the, the Troika has said jump, the Irish have said, how high do you want me to go? Right? And they've been able to get through it. But the, the collateral damage to the country in terms of ongoing debt and immigration is, is amazing. Right? So that, 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 that's the problem. We can't go on like this anymore because the, the damage it's doing... And, you know, Greece had a radical left party come in, but the... the, the, the um, the Golden Dawn were there in the background, and they can only get stronger, especially with the migration crisis going on. So it is difficult, and the European Central Bank are not the only game in town. The, the Federal Reserve, the Bank of England, and the Bank of Japan. Now, we'll see how the Bank of England reacts if Britain votes for Brexit. All these highly paid people, whether they have a contingency plan, other than going to the market and selling more bonds, liquidity, which means someone's going to have to uh, take that, that debt at some stage. Look how many bad debts the European Central Bank have on its books at the moment. They're zombie banks. And there's something about you know, pricing. And when you've got negative interest rates, that amount of money going on, you're sustaining zombie banks and zombie businesses. And someone's paying the tab, and that's us at the moment, right? So the project is in trouble for some of the very brief reasons I put there, and there needs to be something to address that, but there is no consensus. I don't believe, after speaking to people in Berlin and Paris, that when Britain leaves, if Britain leaves, that all of a sudden the Eurozone gets its act together and all of a sudden everything is great. I tell you what, Germany will be in a difficult position there because there will be alliances against Germany in the future. There is no question about that. And at the same time, counterintuitively, more will be expected of Germany, right? So that, that, that's, that's a problem. In terms of the trade deals, I can only see that, you know, Obama was wrong to say that Britain would go to the back of the queue because the, the Americans will facilitate Congress. There's presidential power and there's congressional power. And Congress will make something happen with the um, with UK, but it will go along these lines. Europe has become good at doing negotiations, so this is why there's a difficulty over TTIP, which will probably never happen. 
because the German public opinions against it, even though the SPD and the CDU have said they're in favour, it's difficult to get over the fact that German public opinion is against. France has already said that it has issues on that. But when Britain does a deal with um, the United States, the deal goes, they send a fax to the British and they say, that's our terms, and we might change a dot and do a T here and there, but that's the deal we're going to actually have to accept. We will get deals with Asian countries that uh, with Europe doesn't have proper deals with at the moment, and maybe not on the same basis as the United States. But I don't see how, really in my heart, if I'm looking at uh, this, this situation, that they're going to do anything but make life hard for the United Kingdom because there are plenty other countries out there that are considering their position within the European Union and the Eurozone. So they will want to make a, an example like they have of countries in the Eurozone. The problem is Britain is a bit of a larger entity, a much more awkward entity. And, and you know, the idea that all of a sudden all this financial power will leave the city and go to Paris and Frankfurt is ludicrous. It takes a long time to build up that critical mass. And yes, Chinese banks have been getting extra few floors if Britain leaves and that will go, but the expertise is still in London. Uh, and the European Central Bank will probably go back to the ECJ and ask whether Euro trading will happen in, in, in London. We'll see, but the, the city's always done its thing and been able to move very in a very nimble way about this. But I don't see that they can soft pedal with the United Kingdom, and I doubt the French will want to go down that road. The fact of the matter is Germany has, we're one of the biggest export markets for Germany, so German companies will lobby in Berlin to try and get something going there. Um, I think I've covered it, if there's something else there, I don't know. Yeah, yeah I briefly respond to them. I think if you want to have a proper conversation in real Marxist debates, then one of my interviewers over there who can speak in like perfect Marxist terms, but I'll just respond very kind of briefly. Um, from the point of view of the film, which I think <coughs> mainly to some extent within Europe puts in dialogue this somehow trans-Mediterranean imaginaries, let's say, <coughs> and some kind of more Eastern European imaginaries that are more of the current of kind of uh, creative destruction or um, constructive destruction, what you said. Um, versus the Mediterranean ones, which are maybe a bit more about kind of continuity and subversion or kind of new institutional experiments and things like this. Um, and one thing that I wanted to do with the film for sure is to make the kind of creative destruction part heard more. And uh, with some of these people here, also we organized a meeting between Southern and Eastern peripheries two years ago that was called Peripheralizing Europe, where we tried to think also other visions around Europe precisely from these peripheries. Um, but I don't think it needs to be an either-or question necessarily. Uh, the question is how you put these things into dialogue and develop new struggles from there. I mean, I think very much that no other Europe will be possible if there aren't strong social struggles uh, all across it to actually advocate for the alternative we want. So, um, yeah. Okay, I guess we have some time for another round. Can I just quickly on the organising diversity? Because this has been, this has been, it's been extraordinary. It's been a real problem. Because uh, this is, this is sort of an academic European debate. And I've literally spent the last months with my head in my hands saying, I've only got old white men. <laughs> so a few more women we've had. A few yeah, more we women. have kids. 
about movements and others, but it is starts with academia as well as with everybody involved. And I do think we have to become more political. And it is, seems to me that the technocrat, you know, the technocrat discussion is good, but only if it makes it back to the base. Only if we can actually articulate a message of how this impacts us and what is to be saved, you know. And I do think that it's not. It's, I mean, I'm just more reacting because I, I do think there is a lot of things to say. But quite frankly, there is a moment where the European Bank has to get their ass kicked, and it has to be maybe losing one state at a time. And so, when, when is that democratization process going to happen internally in the EU? What do we need to do to lobby the right way? How do we increase that process? And you know, in, in my view, where is the hope from your perspective? And how do we actually move forward? Because I do think that this struggle will continue for decades. A distribution of wealth still an issue. The, the destruction of the welfare state, I mean, seriously, is at a peril. And Europe is getting older. You're going to need labor. You're going to need migrants. I mean, there's all these sorts of discussions, you know, that I think we need to bring forward. And to me, again, I mean, thank you, but um, we need to just kind of step it up somehow. Okay, sorry. Okay. Anyone else? <laughs> just, just making some comments. Uh, from my perspective, I don't think the European project will, be, will collapse. Um, the referendum is, uh, is not a final. Um, even the British people do vote uh, for a Brexit, will we still be there up to two years? Because it's not binding. It's only the status are only advisory. So we, we, I don't think the British people or the state knows fully the, the cost of uh, Brexit. We, we just don't know there will be you know, two years of uh, negotiation. Then we'll find out the cost of withdrawing from the EU, how much we're going to lose out. Then, you know, so there's a plenty of time. There's no need to panic. <laughs> Do you want to say something else? <laughs> 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 I'm interested to see how, how to react to the different views that you propose. On the one hand, we've got a kind of structural led organisation um, kind of coming from your point of view, and I appreciate your talk very much. Um, where, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I've gleaned that there's a more kind of federalist post-crisis here, just out of necessity of needing to internalise these financial obligations, which um, my colleague so eloquently made out. So I'd just be interested to see how, you know, having been here tonight on the panel, how you react to those two different views and, and exactly what you think the actual project of Europe looks like now and resembles. Post you know, 2008 and going into 2016, 2017. Okay, let's lady in the front and then we'll finish. Yeah. Um, I've been following all this EU debate all over and I think I've been digesting it. <laughs> even, though, even though most of the time um, I feel neutral about it, but I actually feel so angry when I hear all this rhetoric that Britain is going to be doomed. If we're going to be doomed either way, then it's better to be doomed alone. Um, no two divorces settlement is the same. So it's like advising a woman in a battered, um, abused marriage to stay there until you get killed, you know, or, or you go out and be naked because you're going to be denied any, any uh, compensation, you know. But for most women, you will rather choose your life and your freedom than to stay in an abused marriage. Therefore, if, we, if the country was Brexit, we don't have to take anybody's model because Britain is unique. We can always find a way to negotiate our own system or our own trade deals. 
And if we vote to remain, then we must be able to have an influence for EU to restructure and change itself. And our remaining should be on those terms. There is no need in staying with a vessel that you know, like you said, we are on the Titanic without lifeboats. Why would you risk to be on a vessel that you know there is no lifeboat? Thank you. Right. I think just to pick up on one point here, which you, you said there, which is important, which we haven't mentioned, which is if we do vote to remain, and it is a tight vote, the real problem I've had with Britain and the way our politicians have actually, and you put your finger on it there, is that we've never had a real proper European strategy about how to influence what's going on. We've been half in, half out, and we've been semi-detached. And we can see that by the amount of people that are going into all the different jobs in, in Brussels and things like that. We need to get more active to actually put our, our views. Now, as far as the French and the Germans are concerned, we're not totally reliable on Europe. And you can see where they, they might have that, that view. But we need to have a strategy. I'm pessimistic whether this government has a strategy to, 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 to make that happen. I think the financialization issue and labor, of course labor's, you know, when you look to the 90s and you look to the meetings and you had ETUC and UNC and you had a lot, you know, Delors initiatives and things like that, there was a lot going on. And if you look at the people in this book and you look at all the Max Planck Cologne people, they're people who would have supported Europe a while back, but they've seen the disintegration of the social Europe aspect that they feel very, 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 you know, if you look at Fritz Sharp and, and you look at the, um, the other person who was a director. Yeah. So you, you've, you've got those people who are very, very uh, bitter about what's happened. So in terms of capitalism, we don't really have capitalism. How is it capitalism that you keep bailing out people who gamble and you making them good on their gambling? A hundred. No one expected to get. They bought all these shares, these Irish shares, uh, in banks, and they never thought they would be made good for a hundred percent. They must have thought Christmas had come early. So capitalism is not really happening. So you can say it's a cartel somehow there in terms of the way things have operated, and you've got to remember in terms of the ECB. You've got a member of the board of the ECB who's been prevented from ever speaking to businesses again yeah. and banks because they, um, uh, he gave away a lot of insider knowledge in a private meeting with banks, and he's a French member, to make it more specific. <laughs> and if you Google, you'll see that that person is, not, is prevented from actually speaking anymore. But everyone knows that most of the board members of the ECB have very close relationships with those. Uh, but banks is where things are going to happen. And if I'm looking at three things in Germany, one of them, which is a real big problem, and you mentioned this to people in Germany, or you mentioned it, is Deutsche Bank. No one took it seriously two or three years ago when I was saying, when I, I, I was saying they are really going, and I was saying to people I know in Germany, get your money out at some stage. Deutsche Bank is in real trouble because it's the Goldman Sachs of Europe but they're not as smart as Goldman Sachs and they don't have as enough insider knowledge as Goldman Sachs. And if Deutsche Bank goes, the German economy is in serious trouble. And just look at the timelines of the last 36 months of how board members have changed, how they've paid fine after fine after fine and nothing has changed. And, and they've gone down to the lowest level in their history in terms of their share price, along with um, Credit Suisse. 
So that's that one. In terms of the crisis, if you want what you, you, you want, you're going to get it. But unfortunately, what you're going to get is the crisis that I kind of intimated at there. And that's the only way when things will change, because governments will have to react. And it will become very, very difficult for politicians to be able to uh, absorb the pressures that they're having. Yesterday we had a phenomenal event here, as you know, female politician got killed, yeah. unbelievable. And, you know, in Norway you had a lunatic around shooting people and, you know, this is becoming more the norm. So, in terms of the ECB, we, we had this discussion, Maastricht Mark II, but you need, Maastricht Mark II is to revision of the Maastricht Treaty, but you need the 28 countries to agree. That's the trick. That's how I would look at the changing the statutes of the European Central Bank. Because at the, at, the, at the moment, they're untouchable, right? So you need a Maastricht Mark II and a new constitutional convention to try and deal with those issues. Because we had the constitutional convention before, it didn't really work out. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh, come on. The convention no, so, was not, you know, the convention so, was a democratic so, so with the UK leaving, we will have Article 50 if it's Boris and the boys who will push forward Article 50, which means that we're going to leave Europe. But it w I don't think these negotiations will only last for two years. When you get lawyers, beg my pardon here, but when you get a bunch of lawyers here, especially commercial lawyers, who are going to make quite a lot of money, and civil servants who are going to be dealing with this, two years is very optimistic. And you're right to say this will become clear. Whatever the politicians have told us in the referendum, what actually is going to happen once we start dealing with the consequences of that vote might be a situation where you would have a better agreement given by the European Union, at least superficially, to the British people or to the British government maybe for them to consider in a new referendum, because that's not the first time when people have got it wrong, as far as the European Union is concerned in terms of referendums, they've been made to vote again. So, um, and in terms of in inequality, the only thing here in this country that's happening that keeps the, the show on the road is house prices, because everyone has got a lot of money. But look at the article in the paper about Aberdeen and Aberdeenshire and that part of Scotland. Look how house prices are tumbling. Why? Because oil prices over the last year and two years have tumbled downwards and the wealth in that area has started to suffer and the house prices have started to go down. Imagine an externality or an asymmetrical shock to the system that might create that situation and there's nothing worse than a rebellious, reform-minded, middle-class, upper-middle-class person who's losing 100 or 200,000 on their house in south-west London or somewhere else. Yeah, we saw the dramatic effect of, of the oil, oil price also. All the, all the other places, yes, the corona, though, it was weakened a lot, so now it is expensive to go to Turkey. Oh, no, it used to be very cheap. But uh, 
But I don't see the UK aspected by the by the European Union. I, 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 that's what that's what I see. The bad the the the, the ones who do not uh, profit from it as uh, the, the the austerity countries and this other issues. But in Northern Europe has profited a lot from the from the from the from the single single market. So so, but but I must say that yeah, we, you you can say that when if there is a um, if the um, upper middle class is, is uh, affected, then they start to react. But what what what, what yeah, what, what what kind of basis could that be? But what what has been at this my very. Disappointment very much so the after the crisis in a sense is that there has no unification of the kind of working class or the excluded ones all over Europe. You know, this is they are going in. It could be very what is it uh, impressed by by the southerners, you know, the southern European states that they did not the population did not turn so reactionary as it did as it had done in other places. But otherwise, there is no unification of in a way they exclude or the working class or, or whatever you, you call them now. And this is, in a way, what has, I had the kind of idea of a kind of public sphere. In, 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 uh, we cannot, if you don't get this, one thing is to have democracy and kind of formal institution, but you need to have a kind of the same discussion on the same topic to the, on the same time. Or, and, and this is what has, what I think is, uh, is the most, uh, what is, Disappointing thing that there is this kind of the social movements in the way they point in so very many different directions. Look at Podemos. No, there was also an IKEA uh, uh, book on, on this to present himself. So it looks like a kind of, of a advertisement firm or consultancy firm. So so why? So uh, this is, I, I, yeah, I, I don't understand it, but I think that I had some hope there that in the crisis, we have crisis for some time, that people react and they could get things on, on the track again. But this time it has not, uh, not ha happened, so. Question, yeah, well, cosmic statement at the end. Um, we have a Brexit debate in Germany, only it's in different figures. The one figure, the Brexit figure is for Trump, because he says, he writes articles on the costs of non-disintegration. The costs of non-disintegration, they're very high. The costs are in financial terms, but also in terms of political culture, of democracy. Mm. And there he is, um, in which he was the other person, even a bit older than Charles, the born 29, is Jürgen Habermas. He predicts that this will lead, and I always thought he's a voluntaristic position, but he says they have no other chance than now go into a federation. Basically, he yes. doesn't call it federation, just, but it's all federation instead of the name. Now, the third party in the game are the European institutions. And that is really, when you go there, they close their, and they close their eyes, they close their ears, and say, mm -hmm. let's petrify what we have. Right? Yes. This is yes. the attitude. And this is the most dangerous position of all. Mm. Your, your situation also exists. Have you ever had such an enlightened discussion in Europe as now during the weeks and months of crisis? There is something, and I, 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 cannot, I cannot stop believing that contestation makes sense and people are innovative. And I have uh, the trust and confidence that outside the frameworks are practices. You have legal norms, we all, I mean, we don't comply with anything. I mean, look at the fiscal compact, that's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Look at the European semester. 
with a joke and all this. Now, if it were such that more productive practices would emerge and would be tolerated, so there are always chances of change. I mean, my chair is called Law and Society. You see, there is something like a living law, and this is not necessarily anti-constitutional, anti it's just you need in a, in a, in a construct like the European Union, you need flexibility, and if the treaties say only if 28 say yes, you get some flexibility, then you can close the doors also. So something else will, can develop. So it, it is not that I'm not taking the law seriously, I'm taking it very seriously, but just because I'm taking also the normativity of law seriously that I say you can live with this kind of double legality and toleration of other practices. We don't know what that happens. We have next, you have Brexit on, on, on Wednesday, we have our constitutional court on Tuesday, and they will answer to the European court on the OMT judgment. Mm -hmm. They will have to say something. They will not say uh, the Bundesbank has to withdraw. No. They cannot say this, but they will say something. And all these things are happening. So something politically is on the move. Just one thing about Just one thing about He needs to, to, if he wants a federation, he needs finance house play. He needs to have a deposit insurance or a transfer system. And you come from Bremen, which is always done well out the financial. We master. get every two yeah, years from, bailout. Uh, from <laughs> 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 Sorry. So, so I think that's important. Yeah, maybe I'll just uh, one second to respond. Seems I'm definitely not a law scholar, but on the level of imaginaries, I don't know if it's so much about the husband and the wife, but maybe it's more about you live in an apartment block with a lot of complex families with maybe some abusive husbands but, um, and, uh, and landlords that overcharge the rent and the state agencies that overcharge the rent that are into complex finance mechanisms, etc. So you can't try and move out of the house, but probably you're going to find a similar situation in the house next door. Or you can try and see if you can get organized with other families or other women in the house maybe and, uh, and think about, rather than this uh, idea that you can somehow be autonomous, think um, I'm going to be a little bit abstract here, but think how you can valorize or think about interdependence in a kind of rather affirmative way. And I think this like that's a kind of symptom of the kind of political and possibly even legal, I'm not sure, but imaginary that we lack right now is that we are so rooted in thinking the liberal autonomous subject as a subject of politics, etc. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that needs to happen to kind of broaden a more inspiring political horizon is to bring in a more feminist vision around how you can think in the interdependence, um, which the European Union is maybe one example. I mean, it's a complex debate, but how you can think interdependence rather than keep going on about this uh, dream ideal of some kind of absolute autonomy. So. Okay, thank you very much. Well, um, as a final remark, and just to wrap up the session, let me just read a passage that I found um, on a book, uh, a book entitled Europe, Europe is Disenchanted uh, for European Mythology. This was written by one of the most influential and contemporary Portuguese philosophers, Eduardo Lorenzo, 
but in 1993. So 23 yeah. years ago, the same year at the treaty that established the EU uh, entered into force. And um, Eduardo Oresu said, because uh, there was a problem with some, some member states, they submitted the, 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 the treaty to referendums and it was quite difficult to pass. This is, I'm quoting, Danish, French, Irish, synonymous with Eurosceptic, does no mean no Europe, no to Europe, or does that mean no to this Europe? But what other Europe could there be? Yeah. Isn't there just one reality, geographical, political, historical, cultural? Well, the question already gives an answer. Europe may mean several things. The question is, if Europeans are against Europe, against the European Union, against what exists, or instead, if they are more radical and they don't really want what Europe intends to be. That would lie on a conviction that everybody knows what Europe is in general, and the EU in particular will be, or at least wants to be. If the no caused by the European Union's goal, or is it because, bluntly saying, nobody knows what his goal is? This was written 23 years ago. So whatever you are voting on the 23rd of June, please do vote in conscience. And above all, please vote wisely. So <laughs> I would like to close the session by thanking once again on behalf of Birkbeck College um, all four panelists for their outstanding um, contributions and presentations and for the exceptional quality of the debate that was generated in this room. Um, I would also like to thank Professor Michelle Everson uh, for the organization, of course, of this year's law and trial as well as for inviting me to chair this session and congratulate her for the huge success that Law and Trial uh, 2016 was. I must also thank Ruth, Ruth, Ruth Saunders, of course, for the administrative work and for the good advertisement um, of the sessions, uh, which enabled so many people uh, to attend them. Yeah. A word of gratitude for someone that's not here present, it's Professor Patricia Tewitt, for the concept of these Law and Trial sessions at Birkbeck School of Law, which have been a huge success. And last but not least, I would like to thank the audience. Without you and your pertinent questions, uh, these law and trial sessions would have never been as successful as they were. So thank you very much. Good evening to you all. And hopefully I'll see you next year. <laughs> <laughs>